Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kayan Isaacson. This week, it's 321 Go with Cosmo Macero and me. Then, I speak to Alice Schlossman, Executive Director of Sarah Care in Dorchester, about the work her and her team are doing to support elderly participants in the community through the COVID-19 pandemic. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom and I are talking about some of the contrasts that exist between the federal government and states for their plans to reopen. All right, Cayenne, here we are back again for another remote version of our podcast, 321GO. We've been easing back into our uh, um, time-honored and uh, preferred format of 321GO. Um, how are you this week? I'm good. How are you? It's starting. I, I was talking to uh, uh, a client earlier today and, and, a, and a reporter, uh, a journalist, uh, and we were talking about how people are doing in their respective situations. And I said, you know, those first the first couple of weeks was sort of the shock and disbelief phase. And then it was the adjusting and, uh, uh, you know, sort of figuring it out phase. And, and, and now I'm moving into the adapting and, and getting used to it phase, which is good on the one hand. Uh, but on the other, I don't want to get too used to this. Right. Yeah. Uh... Yes and no, because I, I do think this is probably reality for a little while longer. So got to find a way to kind of be okay with this new normal. Exactly. All right, let's start off talking about a journalist that probably no one on the podcast had ever heard of or has ever heard of, but all of a sudden he's close to becoming a household name in the me- in, in media and public affairs circles. A guy named Rich Jackson, Jackson 54-year-old uh, former top editor for the Herald Times of Bloomington, Indiana, and uh, there's a remarkable story uh, uh, about him in the New York Times. Yes, uh, Mark Tracy, reporter for the New York Times. Um, the newspaper's top editor is now a, quote, homeless blogger. Uh, this man, Rich Jackson, was essentially laid off um, and is now living in a Motel 6. Uh, he started a website and blog called The Homeless Editor and is now kind of documenting this new life that he is leading. So essentially, he was living in an apartment uh, that was once reserved for the owner of the Herald Times in Indiana. Um, and when he was laid off, they also told him, and by the way, you need to vacate your apartment uh, in the next few days. And all of a sudden, he found himself essentially homeless. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of these really complex stories when you think about it, because it speaks to so many different things. It speaks to how many people are in a vulnerable position where they're one paycheck away from not knowing, you know, how they would pay their rent or whatever uh, their living situation is. It speaks to the decline of the news industry and just what a, a sad state of affairs we are in with local news in so many parts of the country. Um, and then just this idea of all of a sudden, this person having the world kind of ripped out from under them. Perhaps this is something that would have been on the horizon months from now in terms of a, a, a shutdown of the paper or or layoffs, but that the COVID p- pandemic has certainly accelerated. And you've just got this incredibly compelling story. Um, Again, it's the homeless editor is the name of this man's website. I would encourage people to go read it. 
Uh, it's really well done. It's incredibly interesting and insightful. It really is. And, and you know, he describes it, uh, in, you know, his situation as I went from someone to no one in 30 minutes. I mean, within the community, uh, and every community is like this, or at least every substan substantially large uh, metro community is like this. Uh, when you've got a, 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 a significant newspaper that people have relied on for years, the position he was in, he, he was he was kind of a big deal. This guy was kind of a big deal in that community, mm -hmm. and, and just like that, it's over, and 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 it's and it's over so fast, so sudden, so uh, devastating to him personally that it's it's really breathtaking. Yeah, and he really kind of has taken it though it's also an example of how we can turn he's really turned it around um who knows what the future now looks like for him and this blog um as he is he had twenty thousand page views of his first four posts uh earlier this week that was before the new york times covered him and really you know put a limelight on him so to speak and he's being creative and figuring out new ways to continue delivering news and continue writing, um, which I think we're we're seeing more of uh, in so many areas where local news outlets are being forced to close and people and citizens, writers, editors, reporters are taking it upon themselves to say, how can I continue doing one, this thing that I love and two, this thing that I hold dear, which is reporting the news. And that is so important. It really is. It, uh, and I know there's a lot of these types of stories around the country of, of people just thrust into despair from impact from COVID-19, whether it be family, their health, their economic situation, their employment. Uh, this one really just struck a chord because it, like you said, all these pieces fit into it. The, the, the decline, uh, the steady decline we've seen, and now just this, uh, you know, cruel and punishing, uh, you know, nail in the coffin of the, of the, of the, the local news business uh, industry, uh, and then all the personal things that go along with it. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a tale. Yeah. And um, I, I know that you and I have both talked about how we have been, you know, reading his posts now and, and catching up with everything that he's written. And I don't know about you. I certainly plan to stay tuned. All right, Cayenne, let's talk about Zoom. I'm going on like uh, not triple digits, but but heavy double digits on my Zoom, uh, my volume of Zoom uh conferences since the pandemic or since the the, the quarantine began um and, and you know I, I gotta tell you i'm integrating this into all facets of my life we've done zoom bingo we've i've done zoom uh jam sessions we do our, a lot of zoom client meetings internal meetings social uh things uh it, it, it's you know I, i'm i'm uh i'm all in and, I, and i'm gonna retain uh, I'm going to be one of those people that retains and, and maybe expands upon my uh, uh, my Zoom game uh, going forward indefinitely. Yeah, you're drinking the Zoom Kool Aid now. I'm, I'm drinking the Zoom Aid. Uh, look, I think that it was it was a feature that some companies were using, and it was slowly creeping into how we all conduct business. It has certainly taken off. 
Um, my son uses it every day for school. That's how he is doing school. Um, couple times a day with his teachers. He now knows how to get into Zoom, mute himself, start and stop the video and leave a meeting all by himself. He's six years old. So that's the future, folks. Um, I've used it uh, certainly professionally a lot more personally, um, you know, staying connected with friends and families doing, uh, you know, after work cocktails or, or what, what have you on the weekends. But it's it's ama- It's been amazing to see how people have embraced it and found ways to use it. Um, so I was part of the state houses, the legislature's first virtual hearing a few weeks back on an issue to help um, lift families out of deep poverty and some emergency funding for families that are really struggling right now. Um, and while it wasn't perfect, it was really effective. I found that because of the topic, especially, it was so organic having it go from people's living rooms to people's living rooms brought a whole new level of um, personalization to it. And quite honestly, what it's done is it has allowed so many businesses like ours and so many others to continue moving forward and being productive during this time. And it's pretty remarkable. And it's absolutely given us some, some you know, the tools already existed, but it it has forced us to use some tools and create ways to do business that are actually are allowing us to be more creative, right? You and I have have done a few things. One in particular, like a, a Zoom fundraiser for a nonprofit, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and we're going to do Zoom press conferences that might actually be better covered and attended, but than in person press conferences, I think, because those are tough to get reporters to come to. Uh, it's it's you know I, I think it's been a really uh, exciting little feature of this otherwise, uh, you know, uh, un. <laughs> unpleasant and in in many cases, tragic uh, set of circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it's allowed people to stay connected and that's important, uh, particularly when people are at home, um, whether it be alone or just not among other friends and colleagues. I mean, I miss coming to the office every day and seeing everyone that we work with. Um, So those, you know, it's nice to see people and, and check in. And I think that, and we, again, we've had this conversation with clients too. This, this isn't going to go away. Um, I think this is going to be a little bit of the new normal when things go back. People are really going to say, you know, do we need to do this in person? Does an event really make sense? Um, yeah. Can we just do it online? Do we have to bring people which, from... Which, by the way, I mean, on the mm-hmm. one hand, it, it, I get, that, that's actually a way to be more efficient as a company, as an organization, to save money, to save money on travel. Now, mm-hmm. now that has a negative impact on a, one facet of the economy but organizations i think are going to are going to you know uh benefit from this as a tool that they've been forced to use and then adopt and 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 make it part of how they do business and then just one last thing there's there's some pretty fun stuff you can do right you you got you you got the you got the zoom background you can mess around with you can put a funny picture up if you don't want to be be live i love texting people on a big zoom and trying to make them laugh because that's fun (laughs) and um so there's some fun stuff you can do just to amuse yourself. Yeah. And it's it's certainly our present status. And I think it's going to be an element of our future, too. So something we all, if, if you're not comfortable, it's time to get comfortable. All right, Kyan, let's talk about face masks in Massachusetts. As of Wednesday, May 6th, 
mandatory, mandatory face covering um, inside or outside if you can't distance your dist, uh, so properly social distance. That's Governor Baker's executive order. Um, it, it is it is pretty interesting to see uh, still the broad range of interpretations. I don't think there's really intended to be a lot of room for interpretation. I think if you're indoors um, uh, in, in one of the few places, public places that still exist to, to enter uh, places of business, uh, it, it, you know, you ought to be wearing a mask, whether you work there, whether you're whether you're a customer or a client or whatever it may be. <clears throat> um, it's outdoors where I think there's a lot of interpretation because some people say it means you have to wear a mask all the time. And other people say, no, it doesn't. It just means that if you can't socially distance, uh, then you need to have a mask. And, and there, that's a big gray area. What's your interpretation? Um, for me personally, if I thought that I was going to be somewhere outside that I wasn't going to be able to socially distance, I would wear a mask. I, I will admit to and, you know, don't at me world. I do not wear a mask when running. Um, I don't run anywhere that is very crowded or populated. And if someone's coming near me, one or both of us, you know, you, there's kind of an understanding now, like everyone, you kind of just get out of the way and we're all making space for people as we're out there running or, you know, trying to take a walk with my son every morning. I don't put a mask on for that, but I avoid people. I don't, if someone's on the sidewalk, I step out into the street or um, what have you. That's, that is my interpretation. I'm also not currently in Massachusetts, so that's my caveat. <laughs> what are you I doing? I don't, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think there's many runners that while running are wearing masks. And, and I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I a little bit move, uh, I, 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 I shade toward the cranky, that cranky guy side on this. You know, people <laughs> should be, but not, on, not with runners, uh, as long as. They're respectful of others, and and they don't come up on someone, and 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 are not aware of their surroundings. I, I I think I think that's fine. That's a good example of if you're running and you've got running room and, and plenty of space around you, um, you're really not contributing to anyone else's risk or or, or worsening your or enhancing your uh, you know uh, putting yourself in more risk. Um, I think that you got to be aware, and, and and that well that's why I feel that a good interpretation is. You, better, you should have a mask on you at all times if you're leaving your home and on you, meaning on your person. Uh, and and it, it's not hard to anticipate an approaching or, or uh, you know, coming up from behind you, uh, individual or group of people uh, where you're like, OK, I'm going to make sure that I'm masked or I'm going to cross the street or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, but I got to tell you. It, you know, I, I'm not going to from one community to the next here in Massachusetts. I see a, 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 a wide range of different uh, practices uh, and, and, and people grouped together outside that are not wearing masks. But, but, you know, May 6th is really the first day in which it is mandatory. So we'll see how uh, what happens. Yeah. And we should mention that um, there is a possible $300 fine that comes with not wearing it. So to, to your point of having it on your person, it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, toddlers and young children are not required to wear them. Um, and obviously, if people have a medical issue, they're exempt um, 
if, you know, it would hinder their breathing. Uh, so, you know, there's some caveats, but when in doubt, have a mask on you. It certainly can't help, uh, can't hurt. I also, um, I have to say that we work with the Boston Carmen's Union, who are the operators and uh, the vast majority of MBTA employees. And, uh, you know, they're really hoping that the public will heed this uh, advice and, and mandate to keep themselves and other passengers safe because, you know, one place where it's hard to social distance inside, public transportation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, that, that is a whole, that is an entire topic. That is a, a you know, a, a month of Sundays worth of podcast just on <laughs> some, you know, a, a, a number one, a system, uh, well, let's just be going, Matt, a system that was already sort of in crisis, uh, a, 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 a critical public resource, part of the economic infrastructure that, that now it, it is rendered harmful, dangerous when used properly into the, to its maximum capacity. So now what do we do? It, 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 that's, that's something that like really does, it gives you like a headache, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's a big problem that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling fortunate that I'm not responsible for solving today. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. Transportation. Well, all yeah. right. Um, so wear a mask and have it in your back pocket or in your purse when in doubt. It's not that hard. I mean, the you know the free market does have a really important role here, and that is driving uh, consumer awareness and demand through commercialization and 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 and, and uh, uh, you know adaptation of these things uh, and and accessorizing, turning this into uh, into into something that doesn't feel. Um, strange or weird or off-putting or upsetting, right? Who, who wants to walk around with a surgical mask on? Of course, you're going to feel like what's happened to us. So try to, you know, that's why I've, I'm, I've been wearing a bandana. I'm like an idiot, I think, but or, or, or a neck gaiter. Things will be developed, uh, and they already have been. We have clients that are working on this. We do. Um, you know, accessorizing it and, and just building it into the into the culture that's what's going to make people feel like, yeah, big deal. It's like putting on your socks. Yeah, it'll it'll come. Yeah. All right. Awesome, Cayenne. Good talk, man. Always a pleasure, sir. Hi, this is Cayenne. I'm joined today by Olive Schlossman, the Executive Director at Sarah Care in Dorchester. Olive, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Cayenne. It's a it pleasure. It's our pleasure. You're doing some amazing work, so I'm happy to, to get a chance to talk to you about it. Before we dive into what your work looks like current day um, amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, can you talk just a little bit about what Sarah Care is and what services you've been providing in Dorchester for quite some time now. Sure, absolutely. Um, Sarah Care is a community-based group program designed to meet the needs of the adults with uh, functional impairments through an individual that's designed through their care plan. Um, 
It is also a structural uh, comprehensive program that provides a variety of health, social, uh, rel relatively supportive services um, in a protective setting day. Um, it is also enables the seniors to maintain their independence and dignity for as long as possible. That's kind of, you know, a little bit said who we are. And historically, a lot of these services that you've provided have been provided on site. So your participants would come to your program some, you know, I'm sure some daily or some, you know, throughout the week, correct? That is correct. Our participants do come in here um, Monday through Sunday. We're open seven days a week and they spend anywhere from six to eight hours um, per day here. And how long have you been in Dorchester and serving the Dorchester community? And you also, we, I should mention, have participants that come from well outside of the city. They do. So to answer your first part, um, Sericare has, the Sericare is a franchise. Um, it's been founded in 1985 by Dr. Merle Griff. Um but the Sarah Care of Dorchester, Massachusetts, uh, has been established and founded in 2006. We've been servicing the greater Boston area. Mm -hmm. um, since then, the very beginning, we've played an important role in provisions in health and related um, recreational services uh, for ethnic minority elderly and needed population in the Boston area. We do have people come way out of um, the Boston area, such as Puberty, Quincy, Malden, Everett, so uh, Newton, um, Brighton, they come, people come from everywhere pretty much to our center. And prior to the pandemic, what did a quote unquote typical day look like for you and your team? So before um, the pandemic, before we were actually opened until March 24th, until we were notified that we were not essential to close our center. Um, a typical day at Sarah Care, um, we would our members, our participants would come in, and we would greet them. We have a case manager and a nurse would greet every person. Um, we have some just a breakage of a little news that we would read to people. Uh, and we like to read it because a lot of people, whether they have vision issues or other issues, so we would just announce the little news. Then we usually have breakfast. Um, that would follow by exercise. Um, and it's different exercise for people of different abilities, whether it's sitting in a chair or standing up, however people can do it. Um, then we have... Mm, it could be, we have different exercises in different rooms. It could be meaningful meditation um, or other exercises. Then we have different activities. Um, the activities were always done for a different level of their cognitive abilities mm -hmm. and their um, abilities of, of ADLs, their strengths. So they were designed and tailored to individuals' plan of care. Then we would have um, other activities, which included um, bringing them outside, whether it's to a park, um, going to the reservoir, going to 
for a walk where they're, you know, so people can enjoy the outside. Um, lots of different games, lots of different activities. Also nursing is obviously huge things um, that is part of Sarah Care. Uh, we have four registered nurses who would do medication management. Um, they would do wound care, whether they have heart condition or whether they're a diabetic, it doesn't matter, or people with dementia or Parkinson's, nurses would take care of any medical needs. Uh, we also scheduled their appointments. We would take them to their appointments. We would bring them back to the center from their appointments. Um, they would see people like podiatry, their primary care physicians. They would um, like to see acupuncturists. Um, then we would have lunch. A hot lunch was always served. We have four different variations at Sarah Care. So people always had four different choices. Uh, we follow the federal food program. Um, they come in and um, they enjoy the lunch. They sit around and they gather, they talk to each other, they enjoy the day here, which is then it's followed by more activities, entertainment, whether it's singing, whether it's karaoke, whether it's um, toss games or, or just a spa, getting a haircut, you know, or their nails done. That was, that's also um, fun. Mm -hmm. And then they would follow by more food, a snack. <laughs> food is always good and they always liked food. But we keep them busy and very entertained till the end. From the moment they walk in through the Saracare doors to the moment they leave, um, people would always be entertained and they want to come back the next day. No one sits around and not enjoys the day. Um, and then they would be leaving back to their home, to their caregivers, or if they were alone, um, making sure that they're safe. That's pretty much the tip. So it was really, really one-stop shopping, so to speak. I mean, they came and they got the social support, which we know, particularly in the elderly community, is so important, is um, their mental health and emotional well-being, through, you know, keeping them so that they're not socially isolated but also in accessing services like meals and nutrition um, and then the support to go to their medical appointments. Um, as you said, at the end of March, your facility was uh, closed due to the pandemic and things have changed a little bit. First of all, I just have to give a huge nod to your staff who you have told me um, are all currently working just as volunteers and continuing to serve all of your participants, which I think is really amazing. But what is the what does your work look like now? Because you're still continuing to serve the vast majority of the guests and participants who were coming beforehand, correct? That is correct, Penny. Um, so I was, as I told you, we've spoken a couple of times before this, I was kind of amazed myself um, I had to let people, you know, just go on unemployment because just to cut their hours. Some people just came back as volunteers and they said they want to do this. They want to help the participants because there's a lot. There's over 150 people that we have that are active with our center. And they said, we want to help. We don't want them to be lonely or isolated. We don't want them to get lost or wander off or get ill or be unsafe. So we help every single one of them every single day. Um, 
So after the pandemic, we have the regulations of, you know, Department of Health and Mass Health, who I want to, you know, say they are done an amazing job in helping us um, trying to sustain adult day health in this situation and do the best possible to keep the people um, safe at home and be able to have adult day health be here after the pandemic is over. Um, as far as, you know, how and what we do is we try to keep people not be isolated and lonely because there have been studies, numerous studies done, but the one that especially I always refer to is the one that's um, been done by um, the meta-analysis um, uh, from Brigham Young University um, on Providence, Utah, that loneliness and isolation may increase the risk and prematurity of death for up to 50% um, for people and for elderly, especially. And this is a trend and it's more now of a trend than ever uh, of everything that's going on. So what we try to do is on a daily basis, um, we provide still nursing, which is, you know, medication management, assisting them with appointments, um, assisting them with their behavioral, mental health, consultation, support, um, supporting their caregivers, supporting them in homes and any referrals they may need, um, sending them packets for activities to do at home. Um, our participants really love Sudoku. Um, they love art and coloring and other things. So we provide packets for them to take home um, and drop them off when we're delivering meals, whether it's crayons or other arts and craft supplies, just so they're busy. Also, exercising is important, just moving, whether it's, you know, in your living room or whether it's in your bed bedroom or it's in the bathroom. So we find and we tailor it to every person we can. Sending them care packages. Uh, we celebrate everybody's birthday in the center. We have been since 2006. Um, at the end of the month, so the month of April has passed. We usually celebrate everybody's birthday by a cake with some kind of music party. So what we did is we ordered a very large cake. We cut it up. We put it very nice and safe. Um, and we brought it to everyone's home, a piece to everyone to celebrate. So this is awesome. It is. I thought it was. I thought it was a great idea. Everyone loves birthday cake. Absolutely. And they <laughs> were very surprised, and you know. So we're trying to do our part as best as we can. So, my I guess final question I think is: We've seen throughout this that nursing home facilities have been really disproportionately affected by coronavirus. Um, you haven't seen that in the community of elderly participants that you serve. What do you think that means for the future of elderly care services? Is this a model that you think we'll be seeing more of? Um, I do. Well, the mission of adult day health in general is, um, is to enable the seniors to maintain their independence and dignity for as long as possible. Services are designated to provide social and health services to adults who need it. Supervised care, safe place outside of their home during the day. 
they also uh, it's a very affordable um, facility. I mean, adult day health in general. Um, it's it helps it affords the caregivers a respite um, for the deeming responsibility for their caregivers. Um, it's it's you know it's very I mean the whole point of adult day health that started it that because it was cost effective and because they wanted to keep the elderly in the home for as long as possible and adult day health provides that they don't want them to go into the nursing homes um, the model of the elderly care services I think we'll be seeing a lot more in the future because it provides economical effects. Um, also for the need of the population um, in society as a whole. And still providing so many of the essential services um, that you've pointed to, which whether it's emotional and mental health or, you know, caring for their physical health, um, all of those things are still being accomplished. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and talking a little bit again. Uh, you know, you and your team are doing such amazing work all the time, but particularly now um, through this and just finding ways to adapt in the current situation that we're all living and operating in. And, um, you know, one step further, so many of them doing them as volunteers. It's just really incredible and talks tremendously about your commitment to the community and, and the participants you serve. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. How are you? Two minutes with Tom, which invariably goes to five or six minutes. I'm doing fine. I hope you are. We could rename it 10 Minutes with Tom. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> and let me just guess, it's something coronavirus related that we're going to be talking about. Uh, you know, the, it, the trend seems to be going in that direction. Yes, it's uh, monopolizing essentially all elements of, of news, politics, and public affairs these days. Yeah, um, as it should. As it should. Yeah, well, it's affecting everything, so I think it's appropriate. We, um, we're we starting to look at a very slow and gradual um, reopening in Massachusetts, as well as other states throughout the country have done also slow and gradual, others not so much. Um, but we're really seeing, you know, a huge contrast in particularly at home in Massachusetts between Governor Baker and how the president has has handled this pandemic from the beginning, um, and particularly now that we are about eight weeks into it, economy is certainly suffering, um, but very different paths being taken. And how it's a very different it's a very different time. It's a very different time, and I, I, I'm not going to I'm not one to praise the president because I think that there's been just a terrible dirge of leadership at the national level, and I can say thank God for the governors who have been logical, sensitive, um, and I think compassionate at, at the same time, especially Baker, especially Cuomo, especially uh, Gavin Newsom out in California, who mm -hmm. have provided the real leadership across the country. 
developing regional uh, regional states coming together to talk about things like reopening, but they do it together, not in one lump sum. And they do it because they understand exactly how the virus is hit in their state and in their region. Um, Baker, I think to his credit, has been very slow to have our economy reemerge in, in a, in a snap-it-on-the-light version. I think I think his graduality has been terrific. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yesterday he opening the golf courses um, with a lot with a lot of guidelines as to how people are going to enjoy their golf courses and how they're going to play. Um, and so I, I, I think it's going to be. I think that type of thing is going to slow down just kind of a mass entrance back into golfing. It, it's it's going to take time for people to understand exactly what it is the advisory board and he have suggested on reopening golf courses, restaurants, uh, light retail, and so forth. They're going very, very slowly because they're concerned about the warnings of a second surge, mm-hmm. uh, a second spike in the pandemic. And they just want to take it very, very slowly. And I, and I and I applaud them for what it is they're doing and how they're doing it. Yeah, I think both he and Mayor Walsh have. It's been a very deliberate and purposeful uh, approach. Uh, one that you know, if we were to go back a few weeks, that President Trump alluded to of you know of, we've got to do this shutdown. This is what we have to do. You know, he a lot of from the beginning it seemed like that was the path he was on. Um, has essentially grown impatient of that path um, and has switched gears. But to your point, you know, thank God for the governors in in all of these states who are really saying, you know, I'm going to say that I know what's best for for my citizens. And these are the steps we're going to take. And I, I certainly think Massachusetts is, is one of those, um, yep. as well as all the right. city of Boston. I, I think that's right. And uh, I, I think people on both sides of the aisle, I mean, have viewed Baker and Polito as being apolitic on this and, and just putting the leadership first in, in the interest of what's best for the people of the state of Massachusetts. And I think I, I think Marty Walsh has done the same thing. Um, anyway, time will prove this out one way or the other. And I know people, even though they're being urged to kind of slowly reenter the economy and get it going again, are going to be quite hesitant about traveling to work. How do they get there? How close are they to colleagues once they're in place? Um, how, how challenged are they going to be? How threatening is it to themselves and then to their families? Um, when is testing going to come about? How many of us really have had this and don't know it? Uh, how mm-hmm. many of us have had it, don't know it, and are carrying it and infecting? We don't have those numbers. Um, that's what we're being told you know, by the National Advisory Committee and Dr. Fauci and... and uh, and Deborah Bricks. So, you know, I do think that we have enough leadership to put the cautionary signs out so that uh, we we have a lot of kind of blinking yellow lights to caution us, to slow us down, and to make sure that we're doing it in a reasonable fashion. Yeah. Well, we've uh, we've got a bit of a road ahead of us, but I think that that's the the smart and, and practical thing. So we will sit tight and one continue. The, one, of uh, is, one of the other things that has reopened, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, has, has been the hospitals <laughs> where, where they two or three months ago were telling people that elective surgeries, for example, were going to be put on hold. 
um, they're now welcoming people back in and they want the elective surgeries because the pandemic has, has slowed down. There are more beds available. There's less crisis and challenges to people going into those hospitals and into those medical centers so that they're not going to feel as though when they do go in, they're going to be they're going to be infected. They um, and I think that's beginning to work as well. And more and more doctors appointments uh, of doctors seeing their patients as, as they do on a routine basis are opening up as well. And so, you know, they're doing it with with time slots. They're doing it with with people being separated. They're doing it with distance socializing. And uh, and it, it seems to be working. We'll know better how this is all working out in the next two or three or four weeks. As it begins to open, are the cases going to come back? Are they going to converge again? We don't know that. But um, given the slowness of the opening, the hopes are high, and, uh, and and we all hope for the best. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Tom. Hey, you know, it's a it's a time we're we're approaching seventy five thousand deaths due to the virus nationally. We are mm-hmm. approaching forty seven hundred, I guess, in in Massachusetts. Um, due to the virus. We have a lot of people who have been overwhelmed by grief and by the, the services they typically provide that they can't provide. And uh, it's just a it's just a time. But as I said last week, there will be a brighter day and uh, we're going to all work towards that end. You stay safe and stay healthy. And uh, I look forward to talking to you later. You too. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Diane. Thanks, Catherine. On behalf of all of us here at O'Neill & Associates, we hope you and your families are staying safe and healthy. We're proud to continue our work during this time and we'll continue doing everything we can to keep you updated. For daily city, state, and federal updates on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, please check out our website where updates are posted every morning. OA On Air is produced and edited by Ashley Locken and Catherine O'Brien. Talk to you next week.